Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we'll be in Colossians for several weeks as we walk through this book. And uh, so today we're answering the question, why should Jesus have first place in your life? Why should Jesus have first place in your life? Now, here's the thing. The world is interested in Jesus. Very interested in Jesus. He's the topic of a lot of conversations. Every year, the number one book sold in the world is the Bible. Uh, in a few weeks, you're gonna start noticing on TV, there'll be a lot of new TV shows, a lot of new articles that come out about Jesus uh, as we approach Easter, all right? And a lot of them are gonna be like some secret hidden thing that they say that they've found that always comes to be absolutely nothing. But the truth is, Jesus sells. He sells, so shows and movies and TV shows are, are about him. Matter of fact, of the major world religions, Jesus is a part of it in some form or fashion. Islam, though, would say that Jesus was the greatest prophet beside Muhammad, all right, and so that Jesus was just a prophet. You've got Christianity, obviously, we'll be talking about today. You've got Judaism that would say um, they're wrestling with who Jesus is. And so the major world religions today, Christ is somehow a part of that. He is the topic of matter at Newsweek, all right, Time Magazine, all the major publications will have some, they all have published articles and writings about who Jesus is. And this fits into what's going on in the town of Colossae and why the Apostle Paul is writing to him. He's in jail. Uh, his friend and, and church planner has come and given him information of what's happening in the church. Uh, and so he writes to him, and here's what's happening. In the city of Colossae, it was kind of a wealthier place to live, uh, but it was small. But it had every type of, of religion, idol, uh, every type of temple, every type of place to worship. And so what was happening was the, those who had turned to Christ, where Christ had become their Savior and Lord, they were now being, uh, if you will, corrupted or enticed by the culture. And it's what I call Build-A-Bear theology. All right, they were like, all right, I've got Jesus, but I think I also like this from another faith or I like this from another people or I like this temple. And, and they would just kind of begin to pick and choose. And we can see this, right? Where if you don't like everything Jesus is saying, you don't maybe want to denounce him, but you just kind of, I'll delete this part, but I'll take this part from this and this part from this. And what happens is you no longer have Christianity. You've created your own faith, your own religion, and your own idea of who Jesus is. So Paul is writing to them in concern because he wants them to know who Jesus is and, and what Jesus has done, that we're not about creating a God that fits our liking. All right, We want to know who God really is and, and what's right. So the church had absorbed some of the culture. Now hear me, the church never denied Jesus. This is an important part. He's never writing to the church of Colossae and say, you're denying Jesus. But what he is saying is that you're having a Jesus and something else type of thinking. And, and it's, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus and something else. All right, and so what's happening here is that it's corrupting the authenticity of who Jesus is and now Christianity. And so it's not a we worship Jesus and embrace other things. It's not Jesus and. And so his also his concern was with the second generation of believers. So the first generation was those who had, had listened to uh, and heard the gospel. They've come to know Christ and they're forming the church. All right, but then if their thinking becomes watered down, when they reach the next generation of believers, they're not gonna be following the word of God like it's called to be and they're not gonna be believing Jesus, the, the biblical Jesus. And so now, by the time it gets to the third generation, it's just not Christianity anymore. So his concern was not only uh, in, in the church, but if who are they and how are they gonna disciple? 
And if we disciple wrong according to Scripture, well, then the church becomes diluted. So his concern was for the, 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 con, the continual movement of the gospel and the church. So there's a huge difference between you and I having interest in Jesus and Jesus being our Lord. Let me say that again. There's a huge difference between you and I being interested in Jesus and Jesus being a part of our life and Jesus being our life. So Colossians chapter one, uh, we're gonna start uh, in verse 13 of chapter one and then we're gonna, we're gonna move down. So what I'm gonna do, let me just cover a few verses. I'll explain it, we'll talk through it and then we'll just keep doing that as we work our way through. Listen to what he says in verse 13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He starts off, and now I'm gonna give you both points right from the, the get-go, and how we answer why Jesus should have first place in our life. First of all, he should have first place because of his work, because of his work, but secondly, because of his person. And so there'll be many subpoints. so give, give yourself a gap if you're taking notes, all right? So let's talk about his work. Let's talk about his work. He starts off reminding the church of Colossae what Jesus has done. And specifically to them as the church, this is what Christ has done for you and what he has done for all. First of all, he, he says, I've rescued us. I've rescued us. We've been rescued. Look in verse 13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. Rescuing is, is he's our hero ultimately. He stepped down into darkness and, and pulled us out of that. He, he delivered it, delivered us from it. Nobody else has done that. No other faith, no other religion, no other person, no other idol, no other temple, no other cult, no other leader did that. Jesus did that. He is your rescuer. Therefore, he is worthy of our worship and our praise because one, he's rescued us, but then it also says that he's transferred us. He's transferred us. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. This transferring is the language of a king who picks up his kingdom and moves it to another address. So it would be the authority that the king has to take his people and, and change their location. So what he's telling you and I is he didn't only save us. By the way, aren't we glad, first of all, that he did save us? He rescued us from the darkness. But then what he did is he, he transferred us to a new address. We now have a new home, he says. You've been transferred into the kingdom of the one he loves. He didn't just save you, but now he's moved you into the, his kingdom where you're a part of his kingdom, his domain, his place. So we have a new home, he says. So this isn't our home. This world's not our home. Can I get an amen, right? Like, yes, Lord, thank you. This is not our home, all right? So no matter how bad things get, how much of a wreck or a mess that we make of things, we go, praise the Lord. This is not our, our home. Our, our home is in the, the kingdom of God. So he, he transferred us like a king picking up a whole population and, and placing us in another realm. He, he has transferred us that way. But he, so he's rescued us, he's transferred us, but he also redeemed us. He also redeemed us. Now, redeeming us is how he forgave us of our sins. It's how he forgave us of our sins. The word redemption belongs like in the slave market. All right, it would be somebody in the slave market who is, who is in chains and somebody showed up and says, I'm gonna redeem this person. I'm gonna make payment for this person to deliver them from slavery. All right, I'm gonna deliver them from slavery. And so Jesus says, here's what I've done for you. All right, not only did I show up as your hero, not only did I give you a new home address, but I've redeemed you of all your debt. All right, the thing that put you in slavery to be owned, all right, often this would happen. All right, somebody would owe debt that they couldn't pay off 
And so now they could, either them, and even in that culture, by the way, ladies, uh, a husband could say, you know what, I, I can't pay that debt, so my wife will do it for me. Or my children will do it. Did somebody just amen that? Jesus, right now, we need your help. <laughs> uh, or maybe the amen was on the kids' part. They could say, listen, I can't do it, so I, my, my, I'm gonna, I'll give you my child. All right, and they will pay off my debt, so they'll have to work for a period of time, for a, a selection of time, so they're, they're enslaved. So what Jesus did is he says, not only did I come in and rescue you, not only did I transfer you, but I've redeemed you. I have paid the price that you needed to be paid, the, the reason that you're enslaved, the reason that you're enchained is because of your sins, and I've paid off your sin debt. Ultimately, Jesus is saying, I'm a God of justice, you deserve death. I've paid my death so that you could have life. I've redeemed you. I, now, when we stand before holy God and we have to give an account for all of our sin, what's gonna, the payment is gonna be the blood of Jesus. I've been forgiven by that. So he's reminding them everything that Christ has done. Now, let me tell you why that's important and why that's important to you and I today. Because there's no other religion or belief system in the world that gives salvation through the love of their God. It's all, you have to earn it. You have to get it, you have to keep it. You have to do more good than bad, all right? In Islam, we have to tip the scales, all right? And we have to do more good than bad, and we just hope by their standard that somehow we've done more good than more bad, and, and we're gonna be there, all right? Or, or one day we're gonna become a god, but there is no religion, no faith, no belief system in the world no cult, no anything, where the leader says, hey, you don't drink the crazy juice, I'll drink it for you. No, 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 you have to die your death, you have to live your life. Jesus said, no, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna bring redemption to you, and I'm gonna do it, God says, because I love you so much, I'm gonna take your place. I'm gonna be the payment for you, I'm gonna die in your place. Let me tell you another reason why this is important. There's a few false doctrines that I see infiltrating all right, the church, and a lot of people that call themselves Christians today. One of those is what we call universalism, all right? So if you're taking notes, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it as we go. If you just heard universalism and started to go to sleep, listen, hang with me, okay? Universalism is the belief that everyone is gonna go to heaven no matter what. It's universal. So all roads are eventually gonna lead to, uh, to God, I mean, he's a God of grace and of mercy, no way that anybody would ever go to hell, so no matter what your faith is, no matter what you believe, we're all gonna end up there, all right? And so what's happening is a lot of our students are like, we're preaching, you know, by the blood of Jesus, Jesus is the only way, then you go off to college, and everybody's like, no, man, God's grace and his mercy and his love, you know, that's it, we're gonna get there, all right? This is, uh, was really became popular because it was what Oprah began to come to, that ultimately, we are so thin-skinned uh, in our desire to offend nobody, that we just say, let's just falsely include everybody, whether it's true or not. I mean, think about it, it's kind of like debt. As long as I don't have to pay it right now, I'm good. Now, there's gonna be a reckoning later, but as long as I don't have to pay the debt now, like I don't offend people, then hey, everybody's gonna go to heaven. But then one day, we're gonna breathe our last, and the debt's gonna be paid. All right, and, and what is that debt gonna be? For those who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus as their redeemer, as Jesus as the one that is transferring you into his kingdom of, of light, the person that understands that you've not only been bought, but you've been rescued. If it's not Jesus, then it's on yourself, but you can't do that enough. So universalism, this squashes that. So you hear me, you cannot be a Christian and a universalist. They're not the same thing. 
All right, and I'm gonna show you that more in just a second. Not only is there universalism, another one is called deism. All right, deism. This is that God is up there somewhere, but he doesn't really care. I mean, God is so big, he's over all creation. He doesn't care about us. I mean, it's like a grandfather clock. God built it, he made it, he swiped the arm, and now he's done with it. We're just kind of all down here like, mechanically just going through life and he's just, he's up there in God and we need to make what we want out of life. All right, it's our job to make this the best that we can, ultimately making ourselves like gods while we're here because big God, he's out there somewhere and he's not really interested. If that is the case, the reason we can't be deist and Christians is because the gospel shows us that God cares. He cared so much that he left heaven himself and took the cross for you and I. He, took, he cared so much about your sins that he became that sin for you that you could have his righteousness. And he died and rose again. And then he works that other people can know him, be saved, and cause them into the ministry to declare that gospel to the ends of the earth. If he did not care, we would not be saved, nor would we be sent. You can't be Christian and deist. You can't be Christian and a universalist. And there's another one, and that is fatalism. Fatalism. Fatalism is becoming really popular amongst a group of people that struggle maybe even to grow up, and that is what will be, will be. Ah, oh, what will be, will be, you know. Like, I don't need to believe anything. What's gonna happen is gonna happen. And I, you know, everything's okay. What's gonna happen is just gonna happen. I mean, I, I don't need to worry about Jesus or religion or faith or sin. I mean, if I'm gonna be saved, then I'm gonna be saved eventually. I don't have to worry about that now. If, if God's gonna do this work, he's gonna do that work and I don't have to, to do anything now. You see, the difference here is that when we see who Jesus is, it calls for a response to either accept or reject who he is. All right, he, he first shows us what he's done and the response to that is, you see that he has rescued you you see that he has redeemed you. You see that he has transferred you. Now what is our response? Is it to obey, to follow, to, to trust? And, and so we see, first of all, he should be first in our life, well, because we see what he's done. We see his works and it should move us to say, man, there is none like him. There's none comparable to him. So anytime a Jehovah's Witness or someone comes to my door, man, we, let's have the conversation. And this is where we take him, to Colossians chapter one, by the way, and I'm gonna tell you why in just a second. So number two, we see his, his work, but secondly, he should be first in all because we see his person. We see his person. We see, now we're gonna get into the character of who Christ is as a, as, as a person. And that makes him different than any other person. This is why he is, he is first, all right? And so this is why he's first. So secondly, we see his person. Now, I wanna go ahead and explain a word because I think it's important. We kind of throw sometimes a word around and I'm not sure people understand it. The word preeminent, word preeminent, here's what it means. So if you're just looking for a definition, it means he is surpassing all others, very distinguished in some way. So when we say that he is preeminent, what we're saying is that he is distinguished, he is different above every other person in this category. All right, there's no one like this. It's, he, it's him and, and him alone. He's surpassing every other person in this category, all right? So what he's about to do is in Colossians, he's about to now go on this little tear, if you will, of, of describing who he is, and he gives some, some doctrine to it. Now, some of you, if you're like, I'm not really a doctrine person, I just want application. Well, hang on, 
because doctrine has application, all right? But it does, it gets deep for a second. So listen what he tells us about who he is. First of all, he shows us that he's preeminent in eternity. He's preeminent in eternity. Look with me in verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. All right, he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, let's kind of talk this through for a second because the next two verses are wildly misused in a lot of uh, spinoffs of, of the true faith, and so I think it's important to talk about it. The word image is how we get the word icon, all right, icons. Anybody out there, icon camera? Yep, there it is, picture, image, all right? So what's happening is Jesus is the visible representation and reflection of the invisible God. So God made himself visible in his son, Jesus. He's the visible manifestation and revelation of God. So icon ultimately means the illumination of like an inner core or reality. So the inner core reality is that God is there and he's there in three persons. But he chose to allow us to see him in his son. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God that we're able to see how God chose to display himself. That's why in the Old Testament, You'll hear us talk about uh, the persona where Jesus showed up, all right? Because the way God showed himself or made himself shown in, in person is in the Son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus makes himself visible. Listen to how Jesus talks about this. In John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and my Father are one. John chapter 14, verse 9, he says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So if you want to see the Father, you've seen him if you've seen me. John chapter eight, verse 58 says, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is the visible. Now, the next part of it, all right, he says I'm the, the image, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now this too can cause some problems for you and I. All right, I have two children. My oldest child would be what we call our firstborn, right, and so Sadie, uh, was born in 2013. In 2012, she did not exist. All right, 2013, she's the first human being that Stacy and I created together. She's my firstborn, right? So when you read this, this, you go, hang on. How can Jesus be the firstborn? Because if he's God, then he was created. And then some of you run with that. We're like, yeah, he was created. Like Jesus began at Bethlehem, right? He was like born and, and, and that's where we go with it. But that's not where he's at. Let me give you a verse I think can help you with this. Psalm 89, 27 says, I will also make him, speaking of Christ, I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. The word firstborn, it can mean like the first person created or the first person that was given to that, but it can also mean the first in position. It can mean the first in position. He is Lord of all things, right? He is Lord of all things. So what he's saying here is that he is the firstborn of all creation, meaning he is the in first place of all creation. And you're gonna hear how he unfolds that in the following verses, which means he's to be preeminent above everything. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords, all right? He is the greatest of all things. Everything is pointing to him. So he's talking about his firstness in time or, or, or position. So he's saying that Jesus ultimately is first. He is preeminent in eternity, but he's also preeminent in creation. Now look at verse 16. It's about to get fun. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is preeminent. He is set apart in creation. 
he created, all right? It says he made all things, big things, small things, heaven, earth, all the stars, all the galaxy, the earth, you and I, every atom, every cell, all things were created by him. He is the word. Not only is he uh, God made visible, but he is the word. And so he, all things were spoken into existence and that is Christ. So he is preeminent in creation. And here's the deal, all right? If he created all things, then he can't be created. Then he can't be created. And this is where you start getting deep, right? Because you're like, well, hang on. Everything I know is created. I don't know a single thing not created. Everything at a starting point. And he is saying, and he wants us to know, God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one, and they're not created, but all things are created by him. Now, if you're here and you're a Jehovah's Witness or you're watching this online, they change this. All right, they begin to do a play on words in this language because they don't want us to believe that all things are created by him because if Jesus is God, then he's not created and then we can't become like him. All right, we can't become gods. And so they change it to say by means of him instead of by him. He, this text tells us that by him, through him, and for him, everything that exists, exists. So here's what that means. You exist by him, but you also exist for him. When you walk outside and you see all of creation, it exists by him, but it exists for him. Your marriage exists by him, for him. Everything that is made and has been made, every natural law, every scientific law, all everything we'll ever discover, it was made by him and it was made for him. That's why we should not be scared of science. We should not be scared to discover the depths of his creation because the more we discover, the more we see that his thumbprint and his fingerprint is all in it because it was made by him. That means the more we discover, the more we're gonna find that there was a creator who made it. And it's our job to be specific in who that creator is. It's all made. So he says, before all things, there was never a time that he was not. There's never a time. Bethlehem was the beginning of Jesus, but the Son of God has existed from the very foundations of the earth. And so there's never a time that any existence doesn't know the Son of God. And there's another thing I like about this. If you keep reading with me, it says that, verse seven, he, 17, he is before all things, and by him all things are held together. Let me tell you why I like that language. Science is, uh, you know, I like science because, uh, well, I guess I made my part of the brain likes it. And the atom is one of the smallest things that we know. I, I, if you're a science person in here, maybe you'll like this. I, I like it. Science in an atom, it tells us that by scientific law, we can't understand why atoms aren't splitting all the time. Because there are two protons in the core of an atom. And it should be a positive and a negative. Two positives should repel each other, all right, like the batteries that you put together. And they can't figure out exactly why the atom is not just dividing all the time. So guess what scientists have done? They had to come up with a language to explain why atoms aren't splitting all the time. And so they called it the stronger force. They don't know what that stronger force is. Their belief is that one day we're gonna determine enough, we're gonna have enough technology and enough skills that we'll be able to find out what the stronger force is that holds every atom together. Now maybe one day we are gonna grow in our technology and we're gonna figure out what the stronger force is that God made in that, but here's the deal. Here's what we know. We know the stronger force. It's God that holds all things together. All right, whether we determine in an atom that God put something there. So for you and I in our life, for some of you right now, you feel like your atoms are splitting. Your world is spinning. Things are messed up, things are broken, things aren't right. 
And you need to be reminded God created it. He formed it, he made it, and it's all for him. And it's God that holds it all together. Some of you right now, you feel like your marriage is in a spiral and you don't know what to do. Turn to Jesus. He made it, he created it, he formed it, he put Adam and Eve together, and you turn to him and you watch how God can hold and move all things together. God can work in ways that we can only imagine. He is the one who holds it all together. Why? Because he is preeminent in creation. There is nothing that we will ever experience in this creation that is greater than him. There's nothing. We can, you can call it global warming, we can call it anything that we'll ever face, any danger that we're gonna sell, any tsunami, any hurricane, anything that the Weather Channel can capitalize, right? I mean, every year we're gonna have like a snowpocalypse and we're like dropping an inch in Warner Robins and it's okay. And there's all these things out there about how the world's gonna come to an end and how everything is so bad, but what we know is that God holds it all together. It's all, he holds all the creation together so we don't, we don't live in fear, we don't live in worry because we know he is gonna break it all down and then he's gonna build it all back according to his word. And so we trust him, he is preeminent in creation. Some of you are sick today and you have a disease that doctors and, and everyone tells you Look, there's nothing that can be done. And all I can tell you is number one, God is our healer, he might choose to heal you. And it can absolutely be a miracle. How many of you believe miracles happen every day? I absolutely believe that. I wholeheartedly believe that there are, I'm talking just as much as you read in the Bible and people walked on water, I believe God is doing those types of miracles that make zero scientific sense today. But I also know that sometimes God's gonna allow us to suffer and he's gonna choose not to heal us because God holds all things together and we can trust him in that, all right? We can trust that God is, is good and, and he's got a plan. So he's preeminent in creation. He's also preeminent in the church. Look in verse 18. Look in verse 18. He says, he's before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. He is preeminent in the church. Now, first of all, he's preeminent in his position in the church. He's the head of the church. So I think this is really good uh, time to talk through some of this because you need to understand, like, I might be the lead pastor, but I am not the head of our church. Just let that just settle for just a second. Some of you, maybe you have a Catholic background, all right, where for you, the Pope is like the head of the church. He's, he's the head, he's like the direct, voice of God, and I would tell you, the direct voice of God is God's word, and I don't care if it's the Pope or any other person steps outside of that, they're wrong, okay? Because Jesus is the head of the church, not the Pope, not your pastor, not your deacon, not the person that led you to Christ, the person who's the head of the church. Our church exists for Jesus. He is the head of that, and this is an important part of, of how we exist. Our, it is all for him and to him. He says he, he's the head in position. Now some of you coming from that background, you maybe can, we, we elevate certain people and I can easily see how it's easy for us to elevate pastors, but understand, this is Jesus' platform. Not Jacob's, not any other pastor. We put Jesus high and lifted up at Shirley Hills. Nobody else. Because you don't need more of Jacob. You need a lot more of Jesus. The comforter you need is not to have my cell phone and call me anytime you need. The number that you need is to get on your knees and call on Jesus, because he's what you need all the time, every time. He knows what you're going through. He's your comforter, he's your healer, he's your pastor, all right? And so I'm just his under shepherd. I'm doing my best to use my gifts to point you to Jesus, 
to get us as close to Jesus because he's preeminent in our church, not me. All right, so when we talk about, that's why if it, you're leading somebody to Christ and you're discipling that person, you're doing everything you can to point them to Jesus. They need him. He's their strength. He's their rock. He's their refuge. He's the one that our hope is in. All right, he is preeminent. There's a little D now shout out, all right? He's our refuge. And so he's the one that we trust in. He is uh, in his position. He's the head of the church. Then he says it's also he's that way in his resurrection. He's the firstborn. He uses the language again of the dead. He was in position. He was the first person in, who's risen from the dead. He's the first person in the, this new world after Jesus had rose from the dead. He's the first person all right, who existed since Jesus nailed our sins to the cross and we bore him no more. He's the first person resurrected. He is first. He is our central point of bringing salvation. So he's, he's preeminent in the church because who he is and what he's done. Ultimately, he says, so that he would be first place in everything. He'd be first place in everything. You see, I think this is an important notion for you and I to understand why Jesus is called to be the head. Because Jesus is first, not the pastor. Jesus is first, not the choir, not the music, not the deacons, not committees, not youth, not senior adults, not the wealthy, not the famous. Jesus is first and foremost. He is preeminent in the church. So we don't cater to whether you're young or old, wealthy or poor, whether you have a position or a title in the place, we exist. All things exist by him and to him and for him. That means every ministry and everything we do, it is all for and to Jesus. Now, I'm sure some of you probably have bought this shirt, and I'm sorry, maybe after today you can refund it, but some of you probably bought the shirt where it's like, Jesus is my co-pilot and all that kind of stuff. But let me just throw this out there. Jesus is not interested in being your co-pilot. He's not interested in being the vice president of your organization. He's not interested in, in being the runner up of, of anything in your life. Jesus is not interested in any of that. Jesus' desire is that he would be first place in your life. He doesn't want to be your co-pilot. He wants to be the vehicle that you ride in. He doesn't want to be the, uh, the VP of your company. He wants to be the reason your company even exists. It is for him in your work, in your worship, in your witness, in your wants, all of that. It is about Jesus being first place in your life. Let me tell you why I think this is really important and why it's important to me, because here's what happened. As I began to prepare the sermon, it makes me step back and ask myself one question. I know Jesus should be first place in my life, but is he? Is he first in every area of my life? I mean, if I step back for a second and I begin to evaluate, all right, Stacy, let's talk, and we begin to have conversations and we begin to talk through every aspect or area in our life, is Jesus first? Is he important to me or is he first? Those are two very different things. I, I even believe for not just our sake individually, but I believe for the church, this is a matter of life and death. Let me word it this way. I believe on this point, churches will live or die over the next several years. On this point, is Jesus just important to us or is he first? Is he a part of our life or is he preeminent? Is he, is he central? Is he first place in our heart and our affections? What gets my first and best? Does Jesus kind of get what's left over? 
All right, we see this. Maybe you're saying, you know what? Hey, Jesus is just a part of my life. After I've got the house that I want, lived the lifestyle that I want, gone on the vacations I want, made friends with who I want, played the sports I want, do everything that I wanna do. If there's anything left over, Jesus, I'm gonna give you that. Am I not just a worshiper, God? And he's going, no, I'm just a part of your life. And I didn't come and live and die to be a part of your life. I came to be your life. So you work and play sports and make money and live all of those things for me and unto me and by me. Listen to this quote Warren Wearsby said. He says, few would simply deny the importance of Jesus Christ. They would simply dethrone him. They would give him prominence, but not preeminence. You see, I don't know that if I asked anybody in this room, you would deny Jesus. I really don't. I, I bet you the number would be, uh, I mean, minuscule. But I do believe if we're not careful, we will just give Jesus prominence in our life, but not preeminence. God, I'll give you parts of my life and I'll let you be a part of my life. But I'm not ready to make you my life. I'm not ready for you to be my Lord quite yet. I want you to be like in my marriage, but I don't want you to have my marriage. I don't want my marriage to exist for you. I want this marriage to exist for me. There are pleasure in things that I want out of this. Yeah, my job, you know, God, I, I'm not really ready to give you my job, like me do this, like that you would receive honor and glory because, well, I want my name on the plate. I want to get degrees and I want to get accomplishments so that I will get praise. But it, we don't work or exist or have jobs or have ambitions or have dreams for us. We no longer exist from us. As the baptism showed, we have died to our dreams, ambitions, goals, and plans. And we've risen to a new life where it's about his kingdom and his name and his glory and his praise because he is preeminent. He is above everything else. So let me ask you this question. Do you really want Jesus? more than anything. I mean, take a moment and really answer that. Because all week long, I've had to have answer that question. And there's truth, is there's areas of my life where honestly, Jesus was second place. And that now we gotta repent. Now there's gotta be some readjusting because Jesus, I don't want anything more than you. I want you to be preeminent in my life. I want everything to be about, about you. But it's so easy for me not to deny Jesus, but just dethrone him. Just take him off the king of my life. I, I, and I'll put me there and then I'll make decisions. You see, he is preeminent in the church, but he's also preeminent in reconciliation. He's preeminent in reconciliation. Look with me in verse 21. He says, once you were alienated and hostile. Or let me go to verse 20. He says, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the bloodshed of the cross. He says, you've been reconciled. These opposing hostile forces, all right, our sin nature and, and God, now there's, there's peace there, all right, because we've been reconciled. We, there's reconciliation. We've been brought back to him, and he, we have this, he says, in two ways. You get peace, and it's through the blood of Jesus. We don't really talk a lot about the blood of Jesus anymore. Maybe it's gory, but we watch tons of gore, so I don't know why anybody would be offended at, at blood. It's everywhere. But when we start thinking about the blood of Jesus, this is what he, he slain. This is what he poured out that we can have peace that we could have shalom, the thing that's broken between us and God, it has been reconciled by the blood of Jesus. 
And so you wanna know how to reconcile your marriage? You wanna know how to reconcile your finances? Um, Pastor Glenn in our church, he, he is over our administrative area in our church, and every year his responsibility is to reconcile our finances. Anybody out there, you've reconciled your finances before? It means you go through your, your budget, you go through your dollar figures, and you make sure that everything is there is accurate. All right, maybe some of you reconciled your, uh, maybe if you write a check. Anybody even use checks anymore? Maybe you do. And, and you reconcile your checking. Like three people are like, you know. So you recognize, maybe you need to reconcile your, your debit card, right? You need to make sure that what you're spending and everything is right on your bank account. And sometimes you find something's wrong and you have to reconcile it or fix it. See, Jesus looked in on our life and saw a lot wrong. Our sin was wrong. Our sin separated us from God, but he says, I've looked down and in every account, in every area that your sin has broken relationship with God, I've reconciled it for you. I've paid that debt for you, and now, in every aspect and area of your life, you are made right with God. You are reconciled unto him. Now, students, listen to me. Satan, in some areas, is trying to hold you captive by things that Jesus has already reconciled. So when we say that Jesus is our refuge, he's not just your refuge when things are bad. He's our refuge when things are good. Because I tell Satan all the time, no, 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 that's been reconciled by God. You don't get to lay claim to that. You have no power or authority in that area. It's already been covered by the blood of Jesus. You can't call me by that sin because Jesus calls me by my name. He loves me, I'm his child. I've been transferred into the kingdom. So he doesn't get authority or power or grips on us because now we've been reconciled to God. He is preeminent in our reconciliation. That's not what we do. Look, your ability to help yourself is limited, but he is your reconciler. He is your helper. He's your strength. He's your re he is your refuge, so he is preeminent in that. So he tells them, remain grounded in the gospel. Be encouraged, so he's preeminent in reconciliation, but lastly, he's preeminent in ministry. Look in verse 21. He says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by physical body through his death to present, your, present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Look at how he described us before Christ. He says, you're alienated hostile, evil, but now you are holy, faultless, blameless. You see, Jesus is not just the head of his church, but he's also the head of the Christian. He's not just the head over all of us together, but he is the head of you personally. He is preeminent over you and your life, and so he tells you here, remain grounded in the gospel. Look what he says. He says, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith, or not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. So how do we, in ministry, keep him preeminent? Well, we remain grounded in the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God loved you and I so much that he sent his son Jesus to come and die on the cross for our sins and rose again three days later. And whosoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. This is the good news of the gospel. We must remain grounded in that. Church, hear me. I know there will be tons of fads on how to do this and how to do that. But we will not grow because we weaken the, the truth of the gospel. The gospel is offensive. We don't wanna be offensive in any other area. But the gospel in and of itself, is, it is offensive. It's going to tell somebody that your sin is leading to death. And without Jesus, you're gonna spend an eternity in hell. The gospel says every Muslim, every person who does not place their faith in Jesus Christ will spend an eternity separated from God. Some of you right now, you're feeling kind of offended. 
because it bothers us to talk about it. And the reason it bothers us is because none of us want a single person to go to hell. And that's why he is preeminent in our ministry because he's the head of our life and it is our call and our mandate to go and tell them the good news of the gospel. That's why Paul ended with this thing. Because of who Jesus is, this is how Paul ends. He says, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Let me ask you if Jesus is the most important thing to you, then his ministry in your life has to take a level of importance to you. We can't say he's the most important thing to me, but I'm not gonna be involved in his ministry to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Right now, there are people, even in this place, right now, man, God is calling you to him. There are neighbors and friends who God has placed you where he's placed you, that you would say, I'm a servant of the gospel. I wanna close with a quote that we just had. Warren Wearsby says, few would simply deny the importance of Jesus Christ. They would simply dethrone him. They would give him prominence, but not preeminence. Do we really want Jesus more than anything? There's a study done by those who profess their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So not the church, but those who says, I'm a Christian. All right, I'm a Christian. Uh, One study came out and said that uh, a huge number of college students don't believe that it is okay for us to evangelize, that it is wrong to evangelize. Another study uh, that was shown said this, that the average church member, the average person that says I'm a follower of Jesus gives two, little over 2% of their income to the Lord. It said that the average, the average church member, the person that says my faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, that they now attend church 30 out of 52 Sundays a year. 30 out of 52 Sundays a year. The marks of a believer, someone who follows Christ, in our culture, we have put them at the lowest acceptable possible level to where we can still be associated with Jesus. But Jesus, I believe, is looking back at his church and he is saying, I'm not asking you to follow me and to do the least amount you can possibly do to be associated with me. I believe he's asking the church today, February 2019, do you want me more than anything else? Am I first in your family? Am I first in your life? Or am I just a part of your life? I don't wanna dethrone him. I wanna claim him as king, king of kings and Lord of lords. I wanna ask if you'll stand with me. We have a time where we can respond to the gospel. I'm gonna pray and now we can respond. Father, move our hearts as your people. Lord, in a day where to be a Christian means less and less, Lord, I pray that we would just say who you are and what you've done, either you're first or you're not. You are either Lord of all or not Lord at all. So God, what would be said of Shirley Hills? God, what would be said of my life? Are you Lord of all my life? Or are you really not Lord at all? God, I believe you are looking for people that are taking refuge in you that would make you Lord of every area, even the areas that aren't good, even the areas that are broken, Lord. I know you are desiring an authentic people that would just say, Jesus, be Lord of my life. You are everything. So Lord, would you find preeminence in our lives, first place in everything. God, if not, then I pray that today you would lead us to repentance. Lord, I just wanna lead in repentance. 
God, I want to confess times that our church, our lives, our ministries can become about many other things other than Jesus. Help us to make you first and foremost. We pray and ask this in your holy name. Amen. Our pastor is going to be down front. Maybe you're here. We open up our, our stage, our area down here where people can come and pray. Maybe you're here and you'd like to join the church. Our pastor is going to be down front. Maybe you're here and you'd say, you know what, I just need to pray. Our altar's open. You come and pray. Or maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, I need Christ. I, our pastor's down front. We want to help you follow him. Our altars are open. Let's sing together. You guys come.